0: Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, oh my gosh, have I wanted to do this one for a long time? A legend, a bona fide punk rock Canadian legend from the band The Asexuals, from the band The Doughboys, from All Systems Go, John. Kastner is here on the show today. That's right. We talk about a lot of stuff. John's got an unbelievable depth of stories. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest, Booker Extraordinaire. Here he is booking friends of mine for the show. Uh, And... Thank you, Tristan, for all your hard work. You uh, you constantly amaze me. I love you, buddy. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left 4 damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you listen to this podcast. You can also support it, though, by going to Turned out a Punk, uh, Turnoutapunk.com and checking out the T-shirts that are up there. And huge thank you to Corey for helping me with that and getting a shirt for yourself. You can also, uh, if if you're in America, like I think international shipping is a little difficult right now in some cases and in other cases, prohibitively expensive. So, you know, in America, if you want to get a shirt and I'm going to try and figure out some other things and maybe I'll come on tour. I'm going to go on tour with my band fucked up. We'll talk about that in a second and I'll have, I'll I'll try and bring out of Punk shirts with me. So find me after the show and, and buy a shirt off me. Um, you could also, uh, support the podcast by, uh, Uh, subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform that you listen to. You can also support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and checking some of the stuff that happens over there. I put up video versions of the podcast and footnotes and lost episodes and, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and thank you, huge, huge thank you to people that do do that very much appreciate that. helps keep this show going and speaking of thanks and keeping this show going, this thing would not be possible. Well, the fine folks at Vans who uh, came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do this podcast. Just don't, don't do it on your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing. And that is very much appreciated because there are costs with doing a uh, free podcast. Who knew? Who knew? And uh, House of Vans is back. And hopefully there will be uh, more parties to come, you know, in the future. And uh, I'm very excited about possibly going to more of those. It was great to be back at the House of Vans in Chicago spinning records, doing a history of punk thing, you know? So, uh, oh, man, I cannot wait. For, looking forward to the future. Speaking of future, knock on wood, whatever the future holds, uh, the band I play in Fucked Up will be going on tour. I will hopefully have a bag of into Punk shirts with me, and you will hopefully be able to be able to grab one of those shirts if you so choose. And uh, uh, those dates are found at fuckedup.cc, and we've announced a bunch of them, I think, We've announced three tours so far, east coast, west coast of, uh, parts of Canada and the United States. And, uh, we're also going to England and those ones have been announced and maybe some other places. We'll find out more in the future and hopefully the future is looking bright. One thing that definitely is going to be happening in the future is fucking going to be putting out some records. David comes to life has just been reissued by Matador records. It's out now. Uh, thank you to people that have picked it up already. I'm seeing people sending me stuff on social media and uh, I appreciate you doing that because my gosh, I'm excited to get a copy myself on this, of this new thing. Uh, you can find out more information about that over at Matador records. Also get better records is going to be reissuing epics and minutes. I guess it's not really a reissue. If it's the first time they're going to be putting it out for the first time on tape and vinyl. You can find out more information over there at get better Better records.com and Scotty karate at tank crimes is going to be putting out year of the horse, the fucked up 90 minute long song that we put out. You can check out the vinyl of that. There's a new video that's just come out. Find out more information about all this sort of stuff. I guess on fucked up social media, which by the way, I don't do. So if you're ever reading fucked up social media and you're like, what the hell is going on here with these tweets? It's it's, it's not me writing those things. So find me at left for Damien find fucked up stuff over at, at fucked up. Um, but I do, I do say that's where you can find the video too. They have the video up there. It's on our YouTube too. Fucked up YouTube. I don't know somewhere on the internet. Okay. On to today's show today on the show. Man, that's a lot to get through to get to this part, which is the part I'm excited about. John Kastner is going to be here. John Kastner is a uh, a legend, as I said off the top. He played in not just a incredible band in the Asexuals, who we go into all this on the show, but are unbelievably sonically influential in my opinion. But then he goes on to play in this other incredible band, the Doughboys, who are influential and clutch for a whole other set of Sonic reasons. And so the opportunity to kind of punish John like this, I've never had it, you know, and I've, I've, I've known John for years from, you know, playing shows and just some of the other work he does behind the scenes of music and never had the chance to sit down and talk to him like this. And, oh my gosh, is it worth it? Once again, Tristan booked this thing. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to get to do this. And well, for you to hear it, I've already done it, you know? So, uh, Asexuals are going to be reissuing their first album in February. Spoiler alert, John talks about this on the show, so hopefully John will be coming back for that. You can find out uh, A- Asexuals and Doughboys stuff on on streaming services now and check all this stuff out because they, they are, as I say, two of the best bands ever from here. Ever. Ever. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to say all this stuff in two seconds you're going to hear it, so I'm going to shut up, uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy John Kastner, on turned out a punk John thank you so much for coming on the show
1: no problem well as I just got I was... an alert that said recording in progress recording <laughs> <farting> in progress <laughs>
0: had, they had to put that on there because apparently there was a lawsuit i learned
1: but yeah i could imagine people were probably like using this for terrible things
0: (laughs) yeah exactly so I'm glad glad we're all on the same level we all know we're being recorded now at least there we go (laughs) um but I as I was just telling you off air it is a huge thrill to have you on the show because I would say well you will you not only you know for all the various music projects you you've done but like I would say you're in two of the greatest (laughs) Canadian punk bands of all time like if we're gonna make a list of the greatest Canadian punk bands asexuals and oh. the doughboy, and all systems go i would also put on this list too but i think like you are someone that has been able to do it time and time again so we got a lot to talk about
1: cool yeah you know i've had a i have had a had a long i had a long run you know yeah of uh playing rock and roll well I to... <laughs> and i started real young <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we got to start this off the way they all start off which is john how did you get in a punk during the first time you ever came across it
1: I got into punk, Um, uh, I guess I got into punk rock, there was uh, an older guy, older guys across the street, they were, we called them the 62ers because they were born in 62, they were older than us and they were into punk and before that I was, you know, into the usual like Kiss and Aerosmith and Rush and Ted Nugent and all the rock and roll And I used to go and see all of those shows in the seventies. I had an older brother that used to take me down starting at nine and then at 10 and 11, I, we started going by myself, me and monk and Richard. Uh, and then, you know, like, like, like 80, around then the, the guys across the street, they, I heard God save the queen. And I started hearing punk from them. And then there was a few punk guys in, in high school. I started going to high school and then, uh, I literally got rid of all, I traded all of my rock and roll records away for acids (laughs) and got all, and just got all punk rock records, (laughs) (laughs) which I wish I would have kept some of those rock and roll records now, but yeah. Well, I'm sure Uh, you got some pretty good punk records. Well,
0: I'm I'm sure you got some good punk records in the process. Yeah. Did you see like Rush and stuff when they came to town?
1: I did. So, you know, in the seventies. So like the first concert I went to was, uh was um peter frampton on the frampton comes alive tour and it was actually the day elvis presley died so it was like august uh whatever august 10th or something you know 1977. wow um was supposed to be kiss was supposed to be the first one and i bought kiss tickets and then they announced the frampton show after kiss and the show was actually before kiss so anyway i had an older brother i was lucky who took me to concerts it was a funny thing because he would be like, he'll take me to a concert, but then I had to go see concerts with him. Um, and that, that got weirder later. Like I remember once I got him to go with me to see the cramps at club soda in Montreal. And it was just crazy. You know, Lux was dressed in a, you know, like basically nothing drinking wine out of a high heel shoe. And my brother was like, what the fuck did you just take me to dude?" And then I had to go see, uh, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp with him in return. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I rec-
0: Well, I recently learned, though, that John Cougar Mellencamp uh, was connected to the Gizmos and was like a Midwest punk guy and had a record on Gulture even.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I Nor mean, did you know, I. So- <laughs> his, his hits were pretty early, right? His hits, his big little pink houses and stuff that was like an 80 or 79 80 81 around then right so
0: yeah apparently it was like early like mid 70s it was kind of running around with the the Mm. the gizmos guys and then I guess like he he now actually works with Paul from the zero boys wow (laughs) so I guess Mm. he's keeping it punk but he's a he's apparently a big Stooges fan and a big cramps fan so I guess yeah
1: that makes sense you know
0: yeah yeah absolutely and on a deep level i guess you and your brother were psychically psychically linked yeah
1: well i mean especially you know liking guitar rock and roll in the mid-70s growing up in the midwest i would imagine you know the stooges would be on your playlist because i don't think there was a ton of it you know Mm mc5 and the stooges i mean you look at all those like cincinnati and all those crazy festivals in the you know early 70s and stuff like you know the stooges were on all that stuff right
0: Absolutely. No, they definitely were I guess like an early kind of beacon band for something that was, you know, outside of the mainstream yeah. even for heavy rock.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They were
0: uh, so, so I can I can see that.
1: Yeah.
0: Didn't teen, did Teenage head open that Rush show or did Rush open for Kiss or something because I remember Bob Mould told me that he was actually at that show too, I think.
1: In Montreal?
0: Yeah, he would he was going yeah. he lived in upstate New York and was uh he convinced and his French teacher to drive them to Montreal for shows.
1: Yeah. Well, funny story. So no, the the Kiss show, um, it was Cheap Trick. Hmm. Uh, it was sure, the first it. Yeah. it was the first time we'd ever heard Cheap Trick before. And I remember all of us were like, who the fuck is this cheap trick band? And they literally came back four or five months later and sold out the forum on their own. <laughs> that's how well that KISS tour had done for them. Um and we all loved and loved them and we've loved them ever since, you know. Funny story is uh, a side note is so bob mold's mom uh lived in upper state vermont and when we used to do a lot of stuff with brent Branberry on brave new waves um which was basically the only place across canada that you could hear good punk rock music mm-hmm. um bob mold's mom used to write us letters to the radio station so we would show up <laughs> at the radio station and there'd be a, a letter from bob mold's mom
0: that is awesome wow that's yeah. amazing that's <laughs> yeah up-
1: yeah and, and then we met her so and then we met her once uh when we opened the first time uh who's came to montreal on the zan arcade tour it was uh the asexuals and 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 who's we played the uh, church a ballroom in the basement of a church and we i finally got to meet his mom after her sending letters to the radio station for all those years
0: oh that's mm. amazing what a story oh So where'd you you kind of go from like, you know, hearing about the Sex Pistols and, you know, trading all the records in for the acid and the punk records? Like what (laughs) what were some of the first early shows you were kind of going to or bands you were hearing about?
1: Well, in Montreal, if like all the first, you know, I started to get into punk. It it was, you know, it was 79, 80. um, And. In Montreal, it was all about, or Eastern Canada in general, it was all about British punk rock. Mm. And it was more kind of the hardcore stuff. So it was like um, Blitz and GBH and The Exploited and a lot of that stuff. So I guess, you know, whenever that was, 82, you know, 81, 82, and they all came to Montreal. And when I was in grade seven or grade eight, this kid moved from California to Montreal. And... He uh, he had this punk rock from California that we'd never heard. And so I traded him. I think it was uh, GBH um, Blitz and the Exploited and for Black Flag, the Circle Jerks, and the Germs, first records. Um, and that changed everything for me. You know, wow. it was like it blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the early 80s. But we used to go see all of everything in Montreal. There was a, a club called The Cargo. And we, every, there was the same 300 people at every show. And, and everybody came through. I mean, I, you know, I remember one... So there was a weekend, I remember, in the early 80s that it was the Gun Club on Friday night, Bauhaus on Saturday night. It was $6 for each, do- each show or $10 for, for to go to both shows, it's
0: like, wow. think about that. I'm like, God, it's so fucked up, you know? Well, yeah. who would be playing these shows locally, though? Like, is it the 222 still around, or, or is it 222s? it like- become the 39 steps by then. Okay. Um, you know, but
1: it was uh, fair warning, no policy, scum, um, genetic control, um, you know, all those bands. And yeah. I mean, you know, we were part of that whole scene, although. Um, You know, we are from the West Island, but, you know, Montreal wasn't... Like, Toronto had a ton of clubs to play. Montreal had, like, you played Cargo or Station 10, Mm -hmm. and then you couldn't play. So that's why with Asexuals, like, we got out of town and toured real fast because we wanted to play. And if, you know, once you had played those one of those two clubs, that was it. So, like, we played those two clubs, and I got on my parents' phone in my bedroom and just started booking shows. You know, I booked the first Asexuals tour... I was 15 It was the first time we came down to the states and we did the first tour was like 18 shows and then that summer we did 50 in the states holy you- i was 16 when we did that first tour
0: so did you Did you tour yeah. the states before you did toronto oh yeah wow yeah.
1: the move yeah. that's yeah. the move yeah we did we went uh you know and we with the uh, with the asexuals and the Doughboys, but asexuals. We you know we played those CBGB's matinees a lot, mm. as we could drive down from Montreal. We would sneak over the border, saying we we're going to record, <laughs> and we went to Detroit a ton. So once a month, we would go play Detroit.
0: So I guess going back to when you're you're first forming, like when you're booking these shows, I guess who who are you? How are you getting the connections with these bands in the states? Back to versus- rock and roll. Yeah scene
1: reports you know and from there we started there and then like you know i would meet johnny stiff in new york and he had the connections for eight clubs and then you know in those eight clubs i meet another guy that was like hey you should meet my buddy and it was just connections all the way and and literally and then you know i'd go we'd we'd tape up like boxes of records like 50 records you know because that we'd hand send them all the promo stuff to make uh to make uh, the posters and stuff you know Yeah, it's all total DIY and we just I booked it myself on my parents phone. We hand sent them packages and then we just get in the van and go for it. You did know? you
0: guys put out a demo tape before you did the first seven inch? With uh, the asexuals?
1: No, no. The first thing we ever did was that first seven inch. And I, uh, I went and worked in a coat factory all summer to pay for it. Um, and then we went to this guy, Morris Applebaum, who was this weirdo, hippie dude <laughs> on Saint all street. And he gave us a deal of like, I think it was $700 for 500 singles and, uh, and to record it. And we actually, we did the first record with them too, after that.
0: So when it's on Aug Records, did you just get them to do distribution or just put their name on it as like a thing to help, help move it, I guess. I
1: literally, I I looked at the back of a Deja Voodoo record and I saw the address and I took the bus downtown and I went and I rang his doorbell and I was like, Hey, we're in the asexuals. And but part of the deal was is that we had the singles, but we had to make the covers ourselves, which we basically got our friend Don Schneider to draw. We photocopied them, cut them, and put them in ourselves. So I just went to Og and I gave him a single. I was like, "Hey, can we make this on your record label?" And they're like, <laughs> "Yeah, sure." And that's, that's how it was on Og.
0: That's awesome. So yeah, completely self-release because it, it's there's only 500 of them, and there's so many more of every other Og record. It seems.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, it was it wasn't an official Aug release. I mean. They helped us get rid of them i guess mm-hmm. um but uh but it, they didn't sign us i went and asked if we could be on the label and gerard just said yeah okay no problem kid
0: that's awesome his brother was my high school math teacher
1: oh wow yeah nick
0: so, <laughs> so was that in ottawa no in toronto nick van Hercke. Uh, yeah the other guy? gerard and i'm trying to remember the other guy's name yeah the Gerard was, was the singer guy
1: i think the big dude
0: yeah and he was, he's a professor in ottawa yeah no he, he he went on to act both of them i guess went on into yeah into teaching and stuff, yeah so. he was straighter
1: and like pretty together and the drummer guy was kind of more of a party dude into some dark shit i remember yeah.
0: so were they kind of like would they be the band that would be opening for like the cramps and the gun club i guess
1: yeah they would have been the, the band that was opening for the gun club and the cramps yeah that kind of stuff kind of deja voodoo got it all you know um and then with the hardcore especially the british stuff it got split amongst all the bands. There was a, a promoter whose name was uh, Shithead Productions. That's when, uh, his name was Glenn Shithead. And after, that's when things started
0: getting bigger and outside of the cargo was Shithead. Um, that did it. Um, Where did you guys kind of get that sound from? Because you guys sound so unique. The asexuals, your voice especially. Like, obviously that carries on. Your voice yeah. is such an incredible, like, unique sounding voice. But, like, early on it almost sounds like adolescence and a time seven seconds influence? Like where's that gang vocal influence coming from? Is that from the British stuff?
1: Yeah, it was literally, I mean, you know, when we started as a band and we were kids, we did covers and mm. that just kind of parlayed into, uh, and I think when we met Youth Brigade too, because we met Youth Brigade early on when they came through the um, f- uh, first time. And the uh, first time they came through was on that uh, crazy tour where they never ended up playing. Which we were all there for that the, another state of mind,
0: infamously uh, documented in the movie too. That Montreal yeah. show.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were all at that, and then they came back again, and we played with them uh, at the Cargo, and then we played with them at Larry's Hideaway in Toronto, and we became really good friends with them, and they changed everything for us. Like when I met Mark Stern, like that changed everything because. I was this little kid who was booking stuff and going to the States on our own. And nobody else in Montreal or Toronto no was going down to the States, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, when I met him, he changed everything. And like he helped, he introduced us to a lot of people. You know, he booked our first LA show, which was uh, at the Olympic Auditorium with Golden Voice, a huge show. Like he changed, there's two guys in my rock and roll career that really changed everything one is is mark stern and the other one was bill stevenson
0: different stages when i hooked up with those two guys they taught me a ton of how to do it myself and and those two well and those two guys kind of take what black flag and doa get the credit for and to to another level because like they were doing their own labels they were doing their own production and it was a very yeah it was the next step in evolution as a diy entity i think
1: yeah. I mean, you know, we also had a company in Montreal uh, called Psych Industries and Open Your Head Productions. So I was part, it was me, Dan Webster, Randy, and Steve Kravak. And we did, a, we started promoting a lot of the shows too. Um, so we did, so we knew DOA, that's because we had promoted their shows in Montreal. And in fact, one of the early asexuals tours, we did a run down the East Coast with DOA and the Minutemen together.
0: Whoa, what a tour. Yeah. Holy. Yeah.
1: yeah. And a lot of crazy shit happened at that, like a big a riot at the show in Atlantic City. And uh, it was just crazy. And I remember D Boone, he was the nicest fucking guy, man. Like, he just liked us, and he just was a sweet fucking guy. And we actually played uh, the Anthrax in Connecticut. I don't know if you've ever heard of that place. But oh, yes. Very infamous punk rock place, right? Yeah, and that, absolutely. And the first one was literally in a basement. So we played there with DOA and the Minutemen, and both those they had to duck; they couldn't stand up straight while they played. You
0: know?
1: yeah. I think about it, it's terrifying to me now because, you know, we would pack 200 people into that basement. And there was only one way up. Mm-hmm. You know, to get it was. I think about it now, and I start to kind of get anxious about it. It's terrifying to me, you know, because like any fire, anything would have happened, everybody would have died
0: yeah, yeah. It, it feels like there's, there's obviously still diy venues and diy yeah. spaces but it feels like even they're more regulated now than it oh, was yeah. back then like it was just like yeah. you know right until i guess the social media internet age where you could kind of document everything and people had to worry about being documented yeah. but when it was yeah. still secret you could get away with a lot
1: oh yeah especially in europe and southern europe like i think of some of those all systems go tours like there's a few in particular like in southern spain playing places like that there's one place uh, I've I, probably played there, I think it was in uh, Bordeaux, or it was like that. It was like you went down in a basement, the stage was at the far end, and they would just cram 300 people in there, and there was no fucking way. We were the last, if anything happened, you know, that was. And I, I think about that stuff from like, fuck, man. Yeah. At the time, I didn't give a shit, you know, I was just like, bring it on, get crazier, you get the better. But, well, uh, it's it's weird being a
0: parent, you know, and like yeah. I get shit from this on the show saying that mm-hmm. how sketched out I would be about my kid going to shows. Mm-hmm. You know, he's my age when I was starting going to shows, and yeah. you know I still let him, but like it's just like all the things that my parents didn't know about that was going yeah. on. It was
1: yeah. well, I mean, I think about that for our parents, you know, I mean. Look, we were 15, 16, and we were taking off for months on end and going down to the States on tour. And my dad lent us his fa- our family van, which is how we did it. Um, Paul, our drummer, his dad was freaked out. He didn't say no. I remember he gave him the gas card. And he said, if you get in trouble, use the gas card. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, we were kids, man. And, you know, like on the second tour, we made it all the way to Los Angeles and all the way up the coast. And, you know, the only other band from Canada... That was, there was a DOA was doing it and then SNFU. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, the first time we ever met SNFU, I think was like 84, uh, I think 84, 85, we played a a show together in Vegas. It was uh, a youth brigade, the upright citizens, SNFU and the asexuals and a full riot broke out. So uh, SNF, or no, during SNFU a riot broke out. So youth brigade never got to play. Um, But how we met them is We showed up the day of the show and we, you know, we're all just dirty as fuck, like barefoot. We all walked in uh, our band. We walked in and I remember in the lobby of the hotel, it had a million dollars on display in cash under glass. (laughs) And we walked in and we were all, and you know, we didn't stay at many hotels and we got a hotel that night. Everybody was really ready to shower up and, you know, and we were standing there staring at this million dollars in cash and no one was talking. And then these other Durst, Gross, gross punk rock guys came in and we're staring at it too and i turned to the guy and i was like hey it's weird right and he's like yeah it was ken chan and that's how we met <laughs> that's
0: awesome yeah
1: all staring staring at a million dollars of cash in this
0: but yeah. you're right like you guys and obviously those bands and i guess subhumans a little bit and, and uh-huh. young canadians a little bit like stuff on the west coast yeah. but no one on the east coast no one, no. is doing what you're doing and it's and that was even when we started playing <clears throat> years later, we were like, made the same move. We're like, well, why would we drive, keep driving across Canada when we can start going to America? Yeah. Speaking yeah. across.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it was for us. There was nowhere to play in Montreal. And, you know, Toronto back then, they, they had the bunch of fucking goose kind of had something going on. And there is a bunch of, trying tend to remember, there's a punk club that we used to play on Spadina across the street from, Fort- uh.
0: Larry from, Sideway or, or Fort no, Goof it was or... across
1: the street from the Elmo. It's a liquor store now.
0: Oh, that the, the old Fort Goof where the, the bunch uh, of Goofs had their club. Was what was it market. called? They
1: had a market. Maybe yeah. that was their club. It was right across the street from the Elmo. down yeah. the, it's a it's a liquor store now.
0: Yeah, I don't know why I'm blanking on the name now, but yeah. I've got I've I it's in yeah. my head definitely. But Toronto
1: back then was pretty fucking arty. Yeah. Like the music scene was about this Queen street art rock stuff, which for us, we were like, Oh God, mm. you know, and there was a few like uh, um, youth, youth, youth and uh, direct action. Mm-hmm. There's a few cool Toronto bands, a bunch of fucking goofs. And then there you know, the, uh, then there's like hype and um, you know, some of those bands, I can't negative
0: remember. gain, I guess
1: would have been. Gain, yeah. You know, well, it was, we, so we played with them, you know, um, but yeah we got the hell out of Dodge quick like we, we we went and played we played
0: CBGB's I think before we played Toronto that's awesome yeah uh, what, what was CBGB's like when you went down there for those shows because obviously those are sort of legendary matinees as well like yeah. what what kind of bands would you be playing with down there um like with like
1: Reagan's Youth Adrenaline OD um Jerry's Kids uh uh, you know, all the, the, like the Boston, New York kind of hardcore bands. Those yeah. are all the bands that we played with. And we probably played those mat- CBGB's matinees, I'd say eight or 10 times. I think we probably did it, you know, with, and it was just the same bands kind of shuffled around. And I remember the first time we played CBGB's, we walked in and Hilly said, you know, watch your gear, watch your gear. And we were like, we were fucking scared. And, uh, and, so we played and there's a skinhead at the side of the stage the whole time. And and we played really fucking fast. And, you know, we were scared as shit. I was like 15, maybe 16. And we were like, the skinhead is totally the guy that's gonna rip, off, rip us off, you know? And then we finished playing and they would give you a room to put your gear in, in the back. So, and um, we finished playing, we're breaking down, this guy walks up and he's like, hey, my name is Vinny. Do you want some help loading gear? It was the Vinny stigma. <laughs> that's yeah. Aw- yeah.
0: Ah, That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was the first time we had met him. And there was a funny story about that night too, that first time, because uh, we were all sitting in our gear in the backstage rooms just full of sweat. We just played CBGBs. And this guy pokes his head and he says, dangerous drugs of various kinds. <laughs> 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 that's all he said. And you know, us being the stupid kids we are, we bought acid off of him on a sugar cube, and we were like six, and you only had five. And he's like, Let me go make another one, <laughs> which should have been like a fucking key. Like, this is a bad idea, guys. Yeah. But you know, back then, CBGB's was uh, right next to uh, it, had a, a, a home, a, a place where poor people went to get food, whatever. I don't know what they call that.
0: Like a soup so, kitchen type thing.
1: Yeah, soup kitchen type thing. So whenever those CBGB's matinees were happening, uh the soup kitchen people were handing out ham sandwiches and cokes to everybody in front of cbgb's
0: yeah you hear about that too because like so i guess so many of the kids there were were homeless like it's yeah, like yeah. such a different kind of world for a lot of those kids than you know yeah. boston or dc was
1: oh yeah and it was real, like you know lower east side where cbs was it was bad mm-hmm. you know like you couldn't you couldn't leave your van you couldn't do you know you couldn't do shit. you know someone always had to be in the van all the time and I remember that when we went on the first Asexuals tour, which is that first run to Florida, about a week before uh, TJ, our bass player, got spooked and wouldn't go, so Carlos from the Nils filled in. And I remember that first show at CBGB's. Uh, I come out, and our van's parked up front. It was running. It was in winter. It was, like, January. And I, re- I see Carlos. He opens it up, and it was, like, all these, like, tough skinheads get out with a big pile of smoke, and they are smoking <laughs> a joint in the van. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Like... <laughs> gonna get us arrested you're gonna get us killed like but you know like walking around where cbs was it was bad you know like new york was new york back in those early
0: 80s man yeah even where the anthrax was the original art gallery place you're talking okay. about that neighborhood apparently was no joke oh, yeah as well
1: yeah that whole upper state new york was bad poughkeepsie and all those places it was you know the anthrax It went through three different stages of clubs the initial one was in that basement that was small like 150 people you know mm-hmm. and then it went to a medium-sized one and then the last one was kind of like in a warehouse district that was big it probably held 500 people you know
0: yeah um, you, you always hear about the connection between montreal and new york like there's even that new york montreal connection lp that comes out
1: yeah yeah there was a big connection between montreal and in new york um a lot of those bands came up and play um, it was more of a, a, a punk rock art drug thing, mm. what it was, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, uh, it was deeper than, it was more than just music. You know, it was a lot yeah. to do with art, but, you know, I mean, the first time we ever met, uh, what's the guy from the Cro-Mags? Um,
0: John Joseph uh, or Harley no, Harley. Yeah.
1: First time we ever met Harley was when the, the first time the exploited came to Montreal. They played the Spectrum and then they did that song, Fuck the USA. Uh, Harley started, jumped up and started, yay, yay. And he got the shit beat out of him. So when we left the club, Harley was beat up behind the club. He couldn't walk. He was all beat up bad. And uh, I was with Monk. And back then in Quebec, you know, your Medicare card didn't have a, a picture on it. It was just a brown sunset. Yeah. So we Monk gave Harley his Medicare card and said, here, man, just take my Medicare card and go to the hospital and get fixed up. That oh, wow. Was when we ever met him.
0: Yeah, that's wild yeah no because i guess it's like like you're saying it's so much deeper than just the music Mm -hmm. like it is the music too because the music is kind of grimier than like in toronto it feels like for the on on mass but like it is like it does feel like you know the the same sort of like street level scene like the drugs like you're saying the drugs are the same that people are doing like it feels like they were yeah like kindred kind of places even it was
1: there was a grotty like uh Edgy punk rock thing with Montreal and New York shared that Toronto didn't really have. I like got a bunch of fucking goose, but it seemed it was different. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was lighter, but it was just different. You know, yeah. it, was, it looked different.
0: It just was different. Yeah. Well, the goose were anti-drug, right? Like yeah. their whole thing was like they they didn't. True. You know, yeah they weren't allowed yeah. to, like drug dealers around. Right. So I guess it's yeah. just kind of like a, a very different than Montreal and New York at that time, you know? Yeah. Was-
1: they were, they, they were big boozers. Yeah. they have these Big booze parties
0: and we were always kind of scared of them,
1: but they, they liked us, you know what I mean? Um, so that Steve goof guy, uh, I, I've always remained friends with him. I just donated to him. I guess he's sick. Right. Oh, I had no idea. He's yeah. It, uh, just like, literally four days ago, five days ago, i donated some money to it there's a one of those things going around to help steve goof use some medical problems i didn't say the, what it was but anyway i gave him some money
0: i'll put it at the front of the show and just let yeah. people know about it oh, yeah I have no idea wow yeah well yeah because they they definitely were the from what i've been told kind of the kings of the scene In a they were way. yeah they were i mean the,
1: the early bands in toronto were you know aside from uh you know like the early like the mods and that whole uh, wild tones version, and all that stuff wild tones it was youth 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 and direct action mm-hmm. they were the ones like direct action used to come to montreal all the time you know and they had a real they, they did well in Montreal because they looked like they looked british rock, punk rock like they looked like gbh you know they had the studded <laughs> belts and it was they just looked more british and they sounded more british you know
0: yeah no definitely yeah, yeah. What a, what about uh, Unruled and Zyklon B? Because they seemed like they were kind of like more kind of or punk bands. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, there
1: was a, like, they were part of, um, like, the genetic control guy, Zabo, um, he was around still, I don't know if you've talked to him, but he was an early Montreal punk guy, right? Mm-hmm. He promoted all the shows at the Cargo. They had also, like, a, a place that they lived, uh, a blurry street, like, it was the, the local, they called it the Gen, Gen Con local. And all those bands lived there and jammed there and stuff. And they were part of it, like Zyklon B, Unruled, uh, Genetic Control. They all lived together. So they were kind of like, uh, they were a gang, those <laughs> guys.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess the Primitive Air Raid comp is kind of like, you know, not, uh, well, I guess neither of those bands are on it, but Vomit and the Zits, obviously, Asexuals yeah. and Nils. Yeah. And, um, a great compilation. But you guys got shit from Tim Yohannon because he yeah, misunderstood I, the I, lyrics, right?
1: Yeah, well, we had a whole thing go down, right? Because the lyrics are all supposed to be, like, satire, and they took it all seriously, and it became a big thing. And then they eventually wrote a retraction, like Jello called us on the phone and asked, because we would stay with Jello at his house when we went to California, right? Um, And when he'd come to Montreal, I'd take him record shopping. But there was a whole thing there, and they eventually printed a retraction, and it was, you know, we were dumb kids, and it it didn't... you know we knew what it was supposed to be but it didn't come off as well as we had thought it would and
0: people took it the wrong way you know i don't know to me it always played as satire that's why i was yeah. always surprised but i think timmy ohannon was a yeah. very literalist when it comes oh, yeah. to lyrics you know we got to know
1: them well right because yeah we, we played uh early early versions of the of the um place in in gilman gilman yeah so we played gilman a lot you know, the asexuals and the Doughboys, I mean, I probably played there 15 times, and it was a militant fucking straight-edge place. Um, it, 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 it pissed you off a little bit because they were just, they were fucking like Nazi militant kind of, you know what I mean? Like, it was a bit much, um, but Tim Yo Mama, which is what we called him, he was a cool guy. He was a meat guy. He died early on, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, you know, we would play there, and then we'd go stay with Jello in the city. You know, he'd say... My house is the only house with trees in front of it <laughs> you go looking for his house and sure enough it'd be the only house with a ton of fucking trees in front of it you know
0: <laughs> did um so did you meet jello and go on those early tours before that comp even came out
1: yeah wow so. yeah yeah we might be <laughs> we in california before that came out
0: so yeah. you're touring with nothing out at first yeah. i mean the first the first
1: tour we did was just a single
0: oh man you know? yeah 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 they- It's amazing that you put out that single, that first LP, and that second LP, in like a in like a two year span.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when we were on tour the whole time, we did like three big, three or four big tours in that time. Yeah. You know, we come home, we go away for three months, we come home for two months, and then we go away again for three and a half months, and then we come home. Like we just, you know, once we went out there and got out there and started doing it, we're like, we don't want fucking be here. You know, like, let's get out there and do what we love doing. I mean, it was hard, but it was super fun. You know, I was in a van with my six best friends driving around the States, staying at weird people's houses and meeting weird girls and, like, playing crazy punk rock shows. And it was just the whole thing was crazy. Mm. You know, it just... I, it, it doesn't happen now like it
0: was back then, you know? It was, it was nutty, you know? Yeah, well, because and- a lot of times you'd go out there and you wouldn't know you know there was going to be a show at the other end of the drive you never
1: knew you never knew what to expect when you showed up every time you showed up in a different city you never knew what the fuck was happening you know a lot of the time it was at vfw halls you know um two three hundred punk kids and you know the punk kid had pulled the wool over the guy that ran the vfw hall and he eventually would flip out and it was the same shit all the time you know yeah we didn't play many clubs back then
0: no I, I, you know, it's, it's amazing, too, because of all that touring you did, the impact your sound had on the development of punk rock afterwards. You know, like, yeah. when you listen to the Epifat stuff that would come out of California, like, it's it's asexuals with a lot more sort of, like, California glam metal kind of leads in there yeah. and stuff. Or, you know, like, you talked about the East Bay and the influence yeah. that, you know, asexuals and then later Doughboys would have on that scene. Like, you know, a yeah. band that's always kind of brought up when people talk about yeah, band's that scene.
1: We play there a
0: lot, right?
1: And I mean... Mm-hmm. We saw like, a, you know, like we played there in uh, Operation Ivy and, and Ranch and all those bands would play on the same bill as us, whether open up or we'd play with them. I mean, those shows at, with, at Gilman back then, it was, uh, you know, I think it was five bands a night and everybody got paid the same amount of money. <laughs> so when we first started playing there, it was cool. And then when we started drawing all the people, it wasn't so cool. <laughs> you know?
0: No, well they they, they uh, I guess they still do the same thing where they take you into the back room and they give yeah. the breakdown for how much money the show brought yeah. in and how much you're all going to pay and you can yeah. argue if you deserve more or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I, it, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been there, but it went through many stages. You know, once Tim died, then it got dark and all those kids started drinking and it, like, it all of a sudden became a crazy booze place and it was off the chain in a whole different way. You know?
0: It, it did, but it's amazing how it's still there. You know, yeah. like it's like one yeah. of these places that out of all of them, yeah, you know, somehow, like, you know, like it goes through periods where it's like, I don't know if it's going to survive this, but somehow, yeah. you know, it's like a testament to the power of just community minded kids and punk, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, there was always like one older guy yeah. that ran it and then had all these kids working for him. Sometimes it was a little suspect, you know, like what the motives were behind with the older guy, you know, like having a lot of young kids around ran into that a lot in punk rock back then, you know.
0: Yeah. No, that's an unfortunate thing that comes up a lot on here is the idea that like punk rock is kind of this magical Peter Pan world where age doesn't really mean anything, but there's also predators that can hide in that.
1: A lot of them. And we 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 got up we came up against a lot of them.
0: Well, you guys are so young.
1: We right? were so young and we stayed these older guys houses you, you know they loved having a stay there and you know years later we hear about them getting arrested or going down and all kinds of weird stuff you know mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, i kind of yeah. like it's, it's a new thing that i'm i'm you know i think there should be a book or maybe a documentary but the idea of like kid bands and punk yeah and it's, it's really like you know not that there aren't kids exploited in other genres of music but there, there's yeah. few genres where children are given as much free reign to yeah. like, go out there and just explore the world as they are in punk rock and there's like a you know, like like Steve McDonald, his stories, or or yeah. you know, there's wild stories. Like I'm yourself, you've got stories, obviously. Oh man, I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know,
1: I toured the the states like I think three or four times before '85. Yeah. Right. I mean, every, I could write a book on each one of those tours. I mean, yeah. they were just every night was something insane. You know, yeah. insane. Florida was just messed up. And we all, the first tour we did, we went to Florida, you know, first tour we did, we went to Florida. We had like five shows in Florida and the first show, the skinheads came in and pounded the shit out of everybody. We chased all the kids out of the hall. And I went and like smoked ice with the leader of the skinhead after that. I don't know what it was, speed or something. And then they loved us. And, you know, I would try and they, and they would follow you to all these shows, you know, um, and they would they would you know do these things where they let the show start and they'd all race in and just start punching people in the head and all the kids would run out of the back
0: door mm. you know mm-hmm. it was crazy florida was just in fucking insane you know? what, what kind of bands would you play with down there i guess all different types over the years i imagine
1: yeah there was some uh grim something i forget there you know a lot of the time it was you know Bands like us. There's a mm-hmm. band called UPS, Use of Pieces of Shit. We used to play with a lot.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know that band. I think they yeah. have a 7-inch. Yeah.
1: Um, no Fraud, maybe? No Fraud. That's another band we played with a lot. Yeah. Those are Fraud Guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, sure, you probably know them better than I do, you know, but
0: um, well, we with all those bands... Like you're saying about Florida, it's, it's really interesting how music in general, especially punk, develops down there because, yeah. you know, people always say, oh, Seattle, no one came to Seattle. But like bands did go to Seattle. Yeah. Florida yeah. was off the beaten track. So it like it develops in its own kind of way.
1: Yeah. But everybody went to Florida because, you know, uh, there was only a few places in America where the shows were huge. Mm. You know, um, when you play the cameo theater in Miami, it was always there's a thousand people at the show which when you played to 200 people everywhere that changed everything, you know, and also Los Angeles, you play in Los Angeles and you played to 5,000 people, you know, Um, there was only a few places that had big, big shows like that, you know, and Florida weirdly was one of them, you know, and you talk about Seattle, Seattle, a lot of punk bands didn't go in that time in the eighties because there was a ban on all ages shows. They weren't allowed to do all ages shows. So we would play Tacoma or Bremerton, um, we would play just outside of the Seattle city limits because there was, it was against the law to do all ages shows in Seattle and also in Nevada. Oh, really? Yeah. That, and that changed in the eighties. Like we did a lot of all ages shows in, in Nevada and then they outlawed them. So when we, after that, when we would go to play Las Vegas, we would do these shows out in the, in the, the in the desert. Yeah. So that would set it up like a drive in and you drive down this pass There'd be these kids, you know, and then you drive down more and there'd be pickup trucks on either side with the PA and lights and a generator, that carpet. And we would just play out and it was like in a bowl and just kids were just tripping out, you know, the same 200 kids all the
0: time. Um, And we play outside in the desert. It's so interesting because like I always wonder what happened to the Las Vegas scene because people talk about how great and huge the scene was there. Yeah. And then you don't really hear too much tale of it, but that that's it. Like exactly what you're saying. The all ages ordinance came in.
1: They outlawed all ages shows. That's what happened, and then all those, uh, all those good uh, Las Vegas bands, they all moved to Orange County.
0: Yeah, Mia moves and stuff. MIA, and... Like, uh, there's a few of them. They all moved to Orange County. Oh, that's so wild! Yeah, I had no idea because also, you know, people from like the Killers have come on the podcast and talked about desert shows and how that was where the scene was. But that explains why that evolution happens. Then
1: but... it's so funny with bands like the Killers or. Uh, What's it? That, that big Florida band that sound like Joy Division? Uh, uh, they're huge. Uh,
0: not not um, Interpol.
1: Interpol. Oh yeah, That's yeah. Not, so like all those guys that are in those bands, they all came to the asexual shows mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I, when I meet the guys from the Killers, or the Inter- they were kids that came to those shows. They're little, same age as us, or a little younger, or whatever, and they came to all those shows.
0: Yeah. You know? Oh, and you hear the, You hear the sound on no effects records you hear the sound yeah. on like lag wagon records like you hear yeah. that sound being picked up all over the place like you're talking about like the east bay stuff like some of the yeah. stuff that comes out of there yeah um it's yeah. also funny when you think about the fact that probably your florida shows that were huge were being done by gus and then here he is doing the
1: yeah. <laughs> the dope yeah.
0: show with the Foo fighters years later
1: yeah well gus was a little later though okay gus, like gus came in around 87 88. okay oh you know? and with the like we met gus in the first doughboys tour and we've remained close friends ever since right Um, yes best um but he came in a little later and he was in Pensacola right which is you know at the uh, top of Florida kind of around the band that's where Gus was um but you know we had we had gone to Florida half a dozen times before we met Gus
0: you know did you ever play with the band the sewer zombies down there by any chance
1: I don't remember that
0: weird electronic kind of thing anyway uh, what about you mentioned going to Detroit a lot who would you play with in Detroit
1: god we played Detroit a lot that was a weird connection we had with the asexuals and the doughboys mm-hmm. we played Detroit once a month <laughs> and we played Toronto twice a year and we played Detroit 10 times a year <laughs> it was weird um, yeah. you know we played first we started playing at the hungry brain and then we started play, playing at the Greystone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the first time we played Detroit was like on that a, the asexuals tour Uh, The one with Carlos, it was the last show of the tour and we played, it was the opening of the hungry brain. And it was, you know, it's third week of January and it was in the South side of Detroit. And we, you know, we did fucked up shit. Like I think about it now, like bad idea, you know? So we showed up the day before we met the promoter and his girlfriend and we were sleeping in, it was in like an abandoned building. They were doing it in the basement and they had one room in the corner that they had put old carpet down and space heaters. So we were sleeping in there that night I said, I'm going to sleep in the van and protect our gear. Like, fucking, yeah, like, you're going to, like, a yeah. good idea. And about five in the morning, uh, we, we get woken up. These guys come in, and they pick the first person up they can. It was our little manager, Steve Saki. They, they pick him up, and they put a gun to his head, and they turn on the lights. And they're like, who the fuck are you guys? And it was this bike gang, Iron Coffins. and They had their clubhouse right next door to the club. And they just saw these punk kids going in and out, and they're like, what the fuck is going on? So I'm in the van. I get woken up at like five in the morning by this like 400 pound biker with booze breath. And he's just getting get up, motherfucker. And he's right in my face, like two inches from my fucking nose. And I, I open my eyes. I could see all the guys kind of behind laughing. And I'm like, this giant biker's in the fucking van right in my face. And they made me get out of the van. They took us all right next door. They went, took us in the, in their iron coffin thing. They slammed this door and they just started interrogating us. And at this point, it's like six in the morning you know, and the promoter's girlfriend was there, and at one point there was a bra on the roof, it was a giant bra, and it said, if you can fill this, you get a bottle of Jack Daniels, and she's like, I can fill that, so she takes the bra down, she goes in the back, and she puts it on, she fills it, and then they give him a bottle of Jack Daniels, and then it's like, yeah, hey, I have shots with us, and everyone's like, they're making us do shots, and at about 7.30 in the morning, we stumbled out of there, like, what the fuck just happened? Um, and that night, it was us and Die Kreutzen. Oh, my God. Um, they hadn't showed up yet. And then they showed up the next day. We told them what happened. But then the bikers came to the show. So there was like 250 little punk rock people uh, at our sh- watching us. And then the bikers started to come in and people started to go to the edge. And then, you know, we, it ended up with us playing to 40 bikers. And all the kids either ran out or they were just stuck against the wall, freaked out. <laughs> And, and a lot – so when Di Kreysen got up and played, there was barely anybody left because the bikers just turned around and left after we did. And a lot of the kids had gotten chased out by then.
0: Oh, you know? my God.
1: But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, well, shit like that happened everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, that's what punk rock was. And I think about it. I was fucking 15, 16. You know, I have, I have a daughter that's like that. I just – like, man, it's crazy to think about what we did, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Like, it's definitely – you know like it's it's a uh i think it was a less documented life you don't really stop and think about how crazy these situations are until much later different time you Mm -hmm. know um
1: i don't know if it was if it was safer it's just that we didn't have the internet you weren't reading about all the terrible shit it wasn't in your face like it is now right yeah yeah oh it could have been way worse but he didn't know about it because he didn't you know there was no cell phones there was no internet there was no, none, none of it you know so i mean back then what a huge thing was a when you met touring bands everybody traded these credit cards these illegal phone cards i don't know i'm sure a lot of people from my time must talk about that because it was a huge deal
0: yeah and it survived like not so much when Fucked up was getting going on touring but definitely like when i was roading for the swarm like that was still yeah. the scam phone dialers yeah. and, and phone cards
1: yeah, phone cards was the big thing, and you'd meet up bands, and they'd be like, "Hey, I got a number," and and you know, then there's like a payphone at the Seven Eleven across the street, and all the guys in both bands or everybody was fighting to get to the payphone, you know, and we all used these illegal phone cards, and you know, it was like, you know, at Bell when you got your landline, they gave you a car a number to make long distance calls, and those would get jacked by kids and traded. To all the bands had them everybody and when you meet up with a band that was the first thing you got numbers and everyone was trading numbers you know
0: yeah it's it's funny too because you think about the costs of booking a tour back then that was a huge upfront cost was like the hundreds of dollars potentially you're going to spend on a phone bill calling everyone to try and book this tour
1: i mean my parents were cool about it i had a dial-up phone in my room yeah um and i just i didn't even ask i just picked up the phone and started calling people (laughs) you know, <laughs> they
0: had the most insane bill that first month
1: yeah and they never said I, mean, I think they had a phone plan or something i don't know what it was you know mm-hmm. i had a grandmother that lived in florida so they probably had some plan of some sort but they never i never got in trouble for it
0: did you ever play with boom in the legion of doom in uh detroit they were the band that used to throw dead animal carcasses around oh yeah
1: i remember that band they used to throw dead animal carcasses around we played them at the graystone once <laughs> i remember i was fucking disgusting yeah yeah Yeah, i Uh, i I didn't remember their name but i remember that band that used to throw dead animal carcasses around yeah
0: become kind of legendary on the show like uh, infamously legendary for various antics they pulled
1: yeah yeah we used that in that movie suck i did Uh, where we was the heavy metal band with moby that i was in and we threw they threw secretaries a steak or they threw meat at it yeah That we suck was a lot of my tour stories that i told rob and that was one of them
0: that's that, that awesome band. to know. that's wild I, I saw it and i was like yeah. never made the correlation but that makes yeah. perfect sense now yeah
1: yeah yeah that club you know that was that was the graystone that was this guy scary his name was Corey. he just got out of jail like about two years ago i had heard he loved asexuals and so we used to drive there and sneak across the border and play once a month and we played with tons of bands There was a band called angry red planet we used to play with all the time of course yeah <laughs> um but, you know, Scary loved us. He would always put us up and you would go and get paid. He had a big gun on the table. Um, and, you know, it was all people, was fights all the time. It was madness, you know. Eventually, uh, it was, it was, it was some biker war happened and they drove a Mack truck through the front of that club. That's how it ended.
0: Oh,
1: gee. Yeah, like some biker guys just got in a truck and fucking drove it right through the front of the club. And that was it. And Corey ended up going to jail for
0: murder. Um yeah. Detro- detroit is one of the most fascinating scenes because it is yeah. like you know like new york it's it's kind of spread out but in in detroit everyone's on top of each other so you have yeah. like it, it's like all these scenes and all these worlds are interacting constantly it seems
1: yeah yeah we played there so much man more than any city in america to played detroit you know would you just drive their deadhead style like because like because or would you do stopover yeah, shows we no, we just get in the van or nine hours we get in the van drive straight there <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, yeah. we leave like in the afternoon, we drive all night, we get there in the morning, fake our way over the border with a recording paper, play the show, and then we either stay the night or leave right after the show and just drive straight.
0: That's wild, yeah. I guess was it did it feel more like a hometown show than i guess a new york show i guess it's a little bit no it's about further than new york Same.
1: Right? It, was, it was like an hour further away new york was eight hours Yeah. Sure it but it, for us it was a weirdly like a hometown like we just we played there so much we knew everybody we knew all the bands you knew everybody in the scene you can go online there's a lot of uh videos of our shows back then there's a lot of weird radio station interviews i do at the college radio. Like we did a lot in Detroit. And for some reason, they both they picked up on both the asexuals and the Doughboys, and we always did well there.
0: Yeah, it's weird how they, they just latched on to certain bands. Like yeah. it seems like a, a place that's very loyal. Once they like a band, people yeah. are loyal to it. Yeah, I mean,
1: America was like that. Like there was pockets of places that we always did well, and with the Doughboys also, you know. Like the Midwest, we always did well. Florida, we always did well. You know, Western Texas, we always did well. Like there was pockets where we could go headline and get lots of people, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it always, it was weird like that. It always just kind of stayed, you know, as, as, especially with the doughboys as we got to, you know, be big enough in America where we could do a few hundred people everywhere. You know, or we do 300 people everywhere. When we go to those places, we do five or 600, you know what I mean? It was always, it was just
0: really strong for
1: us all the time.
0: I find it really fascinating to kind of talk with people that were touring pre, you know, the alternative explosion that happens and then post the alternative explosion. Yeah, it kind of happens. Like, how much did the world change for the Doughboys prior to and post kind of everything happening in 91?
1: Well, the thing that was cool about that was that we were part of it, right? Because we started with the Doughboys, we started going to Europe in 89 and, um, and there was a company there called Paperclip. And Paperclip, they booked everybody. They had you know Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, Soul Asylum, uh, Lemonheads, um, all the bands. You know Mudhoney. You know, and the Doughboys, We were the only Canadian band there. Um, but they had 15 bands, and it was the bands. All those bands went on to just change music. Mm-hmm. So when that whole explosion happened, um, we were part of it because we had been touring Europe with those bands for three, four years already. We, you know we had already toured europe with mud and nirvana we'd already we'd done tons of shit with all those bands year for years so by the time all that ex- like and then you know with the with the doughboys we signed a big you know we signed to a and m at the same time like mm-hmm. we rode that wave at the same time as all of all those bands you know and we were all the same age and we were all kind of part of this kiss generation we all discovered punk rock at the same time we all had a lot in common
0: you know yeah. Yeah, because well, it's all it's all the descendants of hardcore, right? Like yeah. you guys are all hardcore kids grown up, yeah. and this yeah. is where it
1: went, yeah, that's where it went. And so we, we had a lot in common, and and you know we were the Canadian band, like you know then like when all those bands would come through Eastern Canada, like we were the band that they knew in Canada, you know, like we didn't matter who it was, when they came to Montreal, they you know we would be down at Soundcheck. You know we'd take them to dinner we you know and it just got you know went from clubs to theaters to arenas you yeah.
0: know mm-hmm. yeah. it kind of feels like there there wasn't necessarily the label support in Canada at the time for you guys that you needed to kind of like you know like in Canada yeah. would a few years later with the the can Rock Renaissance we'd have like a manufactured industry response yeah. to the alternative thing but like you guys like you're like you were that band you are that band like it at the time in Canada
1: for us was it uh, we re- we wouldn't do, we just wouldn't do any of the, the edge and stuff like Paul and Jonathan refused or like we had we, you know, we had pounded Canada, we had toured Canada eight times before all of a sudden we were on much music all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that whole generation of the, uh, you know, our lady piece or um, I don't, you know, all those bands that yes. Scott's, I'm Mother Earth, like all yeah. that whole, all those CanCon bands, right? We had been pounding the pavement and and so we were like fuck this like we just went to the states or europe right and we just we tour canada once or twice a year and we would tour you know europe and america once or twice a year but you know we spent two weeks in canada and three months in the states and two months in europe and you know you do that twice a year there's your year yeah you know?
0: well because like outside of you know sloan i guess there's not too many bands that are, you know It was much more exciting to play with like mega city four and all this yeah. incredible stuff that's happening in the uk than it yeah with some of these bands that they're doing in canada at the time
1: we like, just didn't you know no offense to any of them right we just didn't like any of those bands and we had nothing in common with them um and we just didn't want to be part of any of that fucking cancon stuff we just didn't we didn't want any part of it so you know we ended up not doing all those edge fests and probably missed out on a lot of Opportunities that maybe could have made the band bigger in Canada, but we just wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and our deal with AM was it was a co-venture deal. So we were signed in the States and Canada. It was a co-venture deal. They both put money into it, you know. And it was funny because when that shine single came out, it did well in America and that record did well in America. But then the guy from AM pulled me in afterwards and he apologized because Green Day had come in just like sold millions of records the year after that. And he, they, they pulled, they flew us down. He pulled me into his office and apologized, saying that they should have spent more time and pushed us harder because that could have been us. And we were just like, whatever, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it definitely, like, it feels like your sound is so, like, ahead of the time Mm -hmm. for everything you're doing, right? Like, it's it's a few years before everyone else would kind of catch up to what you're doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We're fine with it. You know, I mean, a lot of the time, my whole, you know, we got paid in cred. Yeah. but you know it is what it is you know i mean I had, a, I had a much more exciting run and did a lot more than any of those bands ever will you know
0: well that's yeah. what we, we measure success and influence on this show and, and that's yeah. i think like the true measure is like how how far what you did went as an artist Because yeah. at the end of the day is that's what makes art successful yeah 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 and, and that's that's definitely
1: something we achieved with both bands you know um, oh, definitely you know, we started going to Europe early. I mean, those for the first European tour we went in 89, it was like we did 52 shows in 56 days. And we had no no pre so you'd have to get up and eat the breakfast at the hotel. And then you'd you know pig out at the huge, you know, they'd lay out a spread at those clubs, yeah. you know, but there was no internet and no cell phones. So it was like you went into a black hole for three months because trying to phone home from Europe, we didn't have those cards. So you'd have to buy a phone card to work the phone. And then you'd have to get another phone card to use the long distance. It was just a fucking mind fuck. And it was in a different language. Yeah. So you basically would disappear for three months. You know? yes. Yeah. Into a deep black hole. And for that first time we came back after that tour, everyone had beer. We were all just like, what the fuck just happened man?" <laughs> like, but man, did we see cool shit? You know, like Europe back then we were playing places where, you know, there was one foreign band at these clubs a month. And then, you know, by the time I stopped touring Europe and the, you know, with all systems go and like whatever, 2006, 2007, there was like
0: five a week. Yeah. You know? Once people realized that the spreads were going to get laid out, they're like, yeah. oh my god yeah. right yeah. over Europe. Yeah. That's exactly. You know,
1: it just got pounded. You know? Yeah. Weirdly, like, uh, you know, I manage a lot of bands and uh, I book a lot of Asian tours for my bands. All my bands go to Asia a lot. And, you know, I go with them sometimes and Asia, touring Asia now feels a lot like Europe felt <laughs> in the end of the 80s
0: <laughs> yeah I think I think we got a taste of the little bit of the that sort of like getting lost in Europe because we were there just the tail end before international calling became accessible like for the first few years of touring over there and like you're saying yeah. it you could lose yourself on those tours and bands would lose themselves on those tours
1: oh yeah you would uh, yeah it was it was insane I mean it was it was a real test of endurance and 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 it just made your band a band because you know like we were in a van with a dutch guy uh you know driving and we would bring you know we bring these hockey bags full of t-shirts and that's how we lived you know it was the merch and we met crazy girls and guys and we had crazy times you know like we went from top to bottom tons of times um and it was crazy <laughs> like a lot of squats a lot of weird s- squat stuff you know like it uh, it was amazing it was a real i feel lucky to have done it all you know at the time i did it
0: did you meet the mega cd4 guys and, and all those british bands on that first tour over there
1: yeah so the first time we went over because uh, you know the, the first doughboys record it got released on uh what goes on in the uk and then and shigaku or in france so we did a french and a british release of that record the first record Um, in 87 um and so in 89 we went over and i think we that was like the home again record maybe um and the first we flew into england and the first show we did was at the fulham greyhound um and we we uh our dutch road manager picked us up and we went to this club it was our first show actually we played leamington spa with the census things the night before and then we played the show at full and greyhound where all those bands mega city 4 senseless things and wonder stuff all those guys they all had the first doughboys record and they all were at that show you know um, yeah and the funny thing was we showed up at that show and there's this weird old dude waiting for us with our records at the back door and we chatted with him for a while and we signed all our records and whatever um, it was john peel <laughs> that's so awesome that Weird old dude that was waiting for us <laughs> that's amazing yeah and then Enemy was there, and they're like, "We want to do a big story on you guys." And we were like, "We'll only do it if we do it from Stonehenge," and like the idiots. And they're like, "Okay, yeah, it was like four hours north or something." <laughs> yeah. So we got in the car with Ed Sears and like a was it one of the, like a, Keith Cameron and Ed Sears, I think, like two of the most famous photographer writers in Enemy. Yeah. Got car, in our van, super crowded, and we drove to Stonehenge. And we pulled over uh, at a McDonald's on the way, and that's when we realized those guys were on acid. <laughs> 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 and then we showed up at Stonehenge, and I jumped out of the car and I went running right, and there was a fence, they had just put this fence around it. And I ran right to the edge of the fence, and, I, and the sun was coming up, and I was like, fuck, there it is, you know? And, we're, and right when I was there, I looked in the grass, and I was like, whoa, there's two dudes having sex in the grass. And I ran back. I'm like, there's two dudes having sex in the grass. And we, we all went over and it was two security guards waiting for us to hop the fence. And they were going to arrest us. <laughs> but so we never did So there was a big piece in enemy. Like we got a full page where it's a picture of the doughboys with Stonehenge in the back with the sun coming up. Oh, that's
0: awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like the scene, you know, much more than Canada like that's the scene where i think sonically you guys would fit in the best even more than any place in america oh, yeah. at the time
1: and we did great yeah. And when we started going to the uk we were part you know in, in america we had the scene with with descendants big drill car mm-hmm. the chemical people like we had a scene and there was a group of kids there's a few hundred kids in every city that loved our scene we had a a, a scene you know um and then in europe and in the uk well in the uk especially we were part of this other thing with mega city Four, the wonder stuff the census things, Ned's atomic dustbin car, the unstoppable sex machine. But we started to do really well. And, you know, we would go over there and tour with those guys and they were playing to those, like those big, those big places that are still there, like rock city or you know, the 2000 seaters. And they would sell every single one of them out. We would travel with a PA and catering. So the first thing that rolled off the truck was catering, you know, and, and we would fucking kill it. We would sell massive amounts of merch and, you know, and we did it a lot. I mean, we probably toured the UK 15 times, you know, because we just Mm -hmm. did so well there, you know. Mm -hmm. And the drives were short. Drives were short. Food was shit. Hotels were terrible. Everything about it was actually terrible, except for the shows were amazing. Yeah. The UK, they just, the whole room was like a big solid box that they all jumped up and down. And you'd have 2,000 kids jumping up and down, and it was just fucking felt great. But then everything else was just terrible. The food was awful. (laughs) The hotels were terrible. Everything about it was awful, you know?
0: It's interesting, too, because, like, you know, once again, how music history takes it up, it's like, oh, Britpop came, and there was nothing before it. Britpop emerged out of, like, this Thatcher wasteland. But there's all this great stuff. That directly proceed that almost (laughs) is laying the foundation for it. Like you're saying, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, like they were almost assumed by the Britpop thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, like we went over, we played, uh, um, and by then, you know, all of our friends' bands, um, like the Lemonheads, we were friends with all these bands. And so there was a year there, like 92 or 93, where we all played Redding. You know, and that year uh, we did Leeds and Reading, and it was the first year they had done the, the two festivals, Leeds and Reading. And so we did Reading on uh, like a Friday, I think, and then Saturday we went to play Leeds. It was the first day of it, and there was a bomb threat, and they had to evacuate the whole site. Um, and some kids had stolen cars too, and were zooming around and stolen cars. So we got rushed off to this uh, gymnasium, and it was with like corner shop and uh like all bands like that you know weird bands fuck are we doing here it was the first weekend of leaves
0: wow i never heard of that they had to evacuate the whole festival that's wild
1: no the the kids weren't in yet oh it was just just the bands just the bands yeah the bands and and all the security and the crew and everything they had to evacuate it because there was a bomb threat yeah so the show got started late and all of our sets got cut down to 20 minutes
0: wow well john this has been amazing and i could punish you for hours would you come mm-hmm. back and do a part two at some point of course yeah um, before i let you go uh i've i've been obsessed with the your related seven inch <laughs> yeah. which is like one of the great <laughs> mysteries of canadian punk record collecting yeah. Uh, yeah was mtl records you guys and what's the deal with that seven inch
1: so that seven inch what ended up happening was uh we got called up by this movie. Uh, uh, I forget the name of the movie. It's a, it's out there. It had, uh, God, what's the guy's name? He died recently. He was a big Canadian. His son had that big hit. Um, uh, uh actor guy, uh, uh, his son had the hit with the girls in it. Oh, fuck, I can't remember. The big actor guy, he was Canadian. And he, I want he to look it.
0: this all up and fix it. Yeah, in he was in it.
1: But so for the part of the movie, part, we the movie company paid for us. That was right when... John, and Scott left and Jonathan joined. So we went in and we re-recorded the guitar parts on you we related. I don't know if you noticed, but that single is uh, it's a different guitar track than oh. it's on That's uh, on the record.
0: Yeah, it does and sound different. I would not have heard it on the internet.
1: It's a different guitar track. Uh. And so we went in and redid it. We re-recorded the guitars and we remixed it for the movie. And part of the deal was is that they paid for it to mix and they were going to do a video for us. And we could. that's how we met Roy Pike, who did our videos. And so they went to cut... Uh, that and it, the movie was so bad that the only part we used was that guy, the actor thinking, getting hit by a car. And we kept using <laughs> him getting hit by the car and the movie company flipped out and they got super angry at us and then just dropped us. And we ended up making the video and that video has, that's the new guitar track too with Jonathan. It's a different oh. guitar track than the album. And there was a limited edition seven inch that came out that the movie company had done um, that I don't even have one. The movie nope. company, the movie company, had done 500 limited seven inches for it uh, to help promote the movie. Um, but then we got in a big fight with them because of uh, us <laughs> fucking with them, and and the whole thing just kind of went away. And I don't know what happened to those singles; they all just kind of disappeared.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I for the longest time I thought it was only a white label, and then I saw one on the internet with an actual printed label on it too. So yeah. But it never shows up like they must have they must have destroyed or lost a huge stack of them.
1: Yeah, I don't know what happened to them. I mean, uh, it, like I say, it went south with the movie company. Um, but there was they did press up 500 and they were out there for a while. But I've, I, like I say, I don't even own one. You know, I, I think I should talk about real quick is, uh, you know, we have a reissue of the first a- asexuals record coming out. in February. I,
0: I heard that. I'm very excited for it. What's going to be on it? it's it's the it's the first record it's the same it's the, the
1: the record but we took it to howie weinberg and got it remastered and uh and we spent we it was a 25 book page booklet that comes with it that oh, we awesome. spent like good six or eight months sean our guitar player put it together and marco page uh, wrote a 2000 the, like, all four of us got on the phone with him and talked about our old punk touring days so he wrote a 2000 word essay in it and it's a it's all these old flyers and pictures from all this time that we are talking about you know
0: well that's one of the things i want to talk to you about because uh you know with uh Pat's writing this thing for you guys because like the the biggest punk scene when the big punk explosion happens in north america from from everyone's stories and everything and even experience is definitely quebec you know yeah. in montreal and quebec city and i yeah. wonder if that those places were so receptive to that sound that was coming out of california because of the work that you guys had done, being the local band there, because it is kind of like, you know, you do kind of wind up defining the sound of that, that problem. Yeah, no,
1: I, I think we definitely had something to do with it, you know? I mean, not a lot of Canadian bands are able to cross over with the French Canadian crowd, right? Mm-hmm. It's a real thing in Canada and still is to this day.
0: Absolutely. You know?
1: mm-hmm. um, and the Doughboys are one of those bands that we were huge with French kids. And so, you know, by the time we stopped playing, we were playing small arenas in Quebec, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I, I would think that it probably had something to do with why you know the the whole epitaph crowd you know I mean the two biggest shows they would do on the Warp tour would be Quebec and Los Angeles yeah I mean those were the biggest punk shows that you could get um and I I mean I, you know I would think that we were we had a small part in shaping that and somehow you know
0: no definitely well like yeah because I I remember the epitaph one of the epitaph sampler compilations Punkorama Volume Two I think. Or volume yeah. one winds up charting on like mainstream charts in yeah. quebec you know yeah. like this sound becomes like all these bands talk about in the 90s that was their biggest show was like oh yeah you know
1: it was montreal always montreal, definitely oh yeah in yeah. quebec city too you know um there's a you know with the Doughboys, one thing that would have changed a lot for us is uh right before we got signed to a m we were supposed to do a whole tour in america with bad religion mm-hmm. uh a two-month tour and um and Paul, our drummer, punched the wall, and broke his hand, and we had to cancel the tour. But that would have changed a lot for us if we would have done that tour. You know? Yeah. Yeah. it. It was a Toronto, famous Toronto show that we did uh, at the concert hall, right? With Bad Religion, the Doughboys, Green Day, and Seaweed. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was we had just gotten signed, our record was like all over the place. And it was our first time playing toronto with a major label so they had like rented out all these rooms and we kind of got separated from all those bands and it was a bit of a sore spot everyone was like what the fuck is with these guys you know yeah um, yeah
0: well i think also probably being on like ultimately green day and seaweed and and bad religion too they're all yeah. signed to major labels but i imagine that's early on to ban signing to major labels too
1: yeah it was right at the time green day I think they had signed but they weren't wasn't they weren't big yet we had known them for playing in in Gilman with them mm-hmm. you know and with the uh, asexuals we also we bad religion broke up in the 80s right um oh, yeah. after into the unknown yeah and so the first show they did back was playing uh in San Diego and with the asexuals were opening for them their very first show back
0: after that hiatus yeah and, the infamous back to the known show and he and and
1: Greg he was so nervous that he had his he, he had his back to the audience the whole show. Yeah, around, um, and it was a big show. There was probably like fifteen hundred people, but it was Bad Religion and, and the Asexuals. That was their first show back in two years or three years or whatever it
0: was. And it's yeah. it's kind of uh you know I've talked to both of them about that show because there's a video of that as well uh-huh. that's floating around. I think Flipside shot it. Yeah, and it is one of those shows which has like attention to it when you yeah. watch it during all,
1: all the San Diego shows had attention to it because mm-hmm. it was one of those towns that it always got we. Most of the time, the shows got shut down. It was the only place in America where they, they'd they hired bouncers to go into the pit and start people moshing, because if you didn't, then gangs would come in with chains and like shit would go south all the time. You know, half the, half the times we played San Diego, we never got to play, because yeah. the show would get shut down before.
0: You know. I've definitely heard that. People come on here and say, you know, people talk about how crazy LA was, but San Diego was way crazier than LA. For uh, some LA pilots. was
1: crazy, but San Diego was dangerous. Yeah. It was fucking dangerous. It was more gangs, it was more just people fucking shit up, you know. Like San Diego and Manchester were two places that were fucked. Like, you know, like uh, the first time we played Manchester, I remember if they were telling us be careful, it was this big show. And we walk out on stage and Jonathan's first thing he gets up to the mic, he says, I got a message Lemmy from uh, I got a message from Lemmy to Morrissey, meat is murder, murder tastes good. And we're like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and that's how the show started. <laughs> but
0: yeah. Oh John, this is amazing. And I do hope you write these books. Cause yeah. uh I will I will be the first in line to buy one when they come out, man. Cause yeah. I, I these are some incredible stories you got.
1: Writing a book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I could write a good book, but I don't know if I'll we'll ever have the time, but we'll see. Well, yeah. anytime you want to come on here and do the oral version of this book, please know this yeah. is chapter one. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, maybe when the Asexuals record comes out in February, let's come back. We could probably use a little push to uh, to get it out, you know? So I mean, we're excited about it. It's like it's we revamped the first I mean, it's pretty fucking hilarious that I got Howie Weinberg to remaster the first Asexuals record. <laughs> it,
0: oh, I think that record is – I was listening to it this morning again, yeah. and uh, – uh, it, it it's it's such an underrated record and I think Canada has a horrible uh you know way of canonizing our, mm-hmm. our musical past especially anything that was outside of the mainstream yeah and I think it's such a tragedy with that record and hopefully now it gets that sort of attention because it is such a sonic yeah. blueprint and it and it holds up it still rages yeah
1: it's funny when i listen to it because we're just such little kids you know like little kids man so i'm proud of it and i'm excited that it's coming out again so yeah
0: well i couldn't let you go john without this story you you were saying Gigi allen one time stayed at your house
1: yeah so Gigi allen played montreal uh God, maybe it was the end of the, end of the eighties. Um, he came up and, uh, I was living with Colleen McIntyre from my dog Popper at the time. And he came up, we knew his deal, but we didn't really know his deal. And so he came up, uh, from New York, he took a bus up. Um, and all he had with him was a, a brown paper bag with a box of X-Lax in it. And he came <laughs> up, he showed up and he was kind of normal, but then, uh, got started drinking a lot and just became Gigi and the show i don't know if you've ever is a pretty infamous show in montreal where the only show i've ever been to where uh the bouncers were protecting the audience from from the stage yeah and he was jumping out and punching people and throwing shit everywhere and um uh, colleen threw up but yeah he came and stayed at our house and I saw him in the afternoon but then when i knew he was staying at my house i wouldn't go home that night i just i didn't go home so i was too freaked out that gigi Al was staying at my house <laughs> so wait did he stay at your house without you yeah oh well i live with four people i live with yeah. gubby. i live with uh with gubby colleen and uh one of the jerry jerry guys i think we we you know it's four of us that lived in this house so, so he was sleeping on the couch that night and i <laughs> met him in the afternoon i was like i'd heard about him I met him in the afternoon, but then I saw the show and I was fucking freaked out after the show. And I was like, I'm not going home. So I stayed at my girlfriend's house because Gigi Allen's staying at my house. I'm not going home.
0: Your roommates must have been so stoked when you got back. Oh my God. They were so
1: freaked out after the show because we knew what the deal was, but it was before the internet and everything. I mean, yeah. we yeah. heard about it, we knew, but we didn't really know until that show started.
0: And it was like, what the fuck? Yeah. It seems like that's, A very common consensus with him that people knew but no one really knew until the show started
1: exactly you knew but you didn't really know you know i mean he got up there and just started like throwing shit at the audience literally shitting and throwing it he took a picture i've never seen a picture of beer get chucked so hard he just threw that thing and it went sailed right and smashed at the back wall he was running out and standing on these lit up cubicles like with a g string on with shit all over him. it was it was fucked
0: up. Yeah. And, and Montreal is a city where that could go horribly wrong for you very quickly. Like- oh, yeah.
1: But the it was cold, so it was like it was already a weird place, you know, yeah. like a lot of weird dudes, you had, like free fruit on the dance floor. Right. Right. Yeah. So see these weird dudes dancing, eating fucking bananas and stuff. It was already <laughs> an acid trip being at Fufoon. Um, You know, it was when there was only one level. It was like a, the stage was in the back. And, you know, he came running out of the dressing room. First thing he did is he punched the first person he saw right in the face, right standing at the side of the stage. He runs on, punches this person really hard, lays him right out, and then jumps on stage. And it only lasted probably like 20 minutes, maybe, 25 minutes, you know, because it just went horribly wrong, you know, like every Gigi show did.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, John, I could probably force you to tell another 20 stories if I don't let you go now. That was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, John will be back for part two in February. We're going to be uh, talking about the, you know, talking again. So many amazing stories. How how was that Gigi Allen story? Yeah, that was it. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, I guess I should tell you what's on next week. It's the middle of the night right now. I got up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, geez, i, I got to put up an episode. I was really sick. Yesterday, I, I ate some, I don't know, I think it was Brussels sprouts, funky Brussels sprouts. No one else in the family got sick, but I i ate a lot of them. Uh, and I got really sick last night. And then so I got up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, I should just re- go downstairs and record these intros and put up this episode in the middle of the night. This might not seem like a good idea in a couple hours when I have to make breakfast for the kids and, you know, send them out the door. But anyway, it seemed like a good idea right now. Uh, but anyway, coming up next Episode of the show. I'm trying to space these out a little bit because we're going towards the end of the year, and you know. But uh, I wanted to end this year with with a bit of a bang. So for me, they don't get much bigger than this episode uh, coming up in a few short days. Probably the clean will be on the show now if you are unfamiliar and when i say the clean i mean the whole band is going to be on the show in one episode and it's a it's a wild episode the clean are a band from new zealand uh i would describe as being sort of like the the key sonic definer of a, the dunedin sound for myself you know like obviously there's a lot of bands that kind of make up that whole thing flying on records uh, their first 12-inch has just been reissued by Merge Record. Boodle, Boodle, Boodle uh, is out now, actually. Uh, pick it up because this record, you know, not, doesn't just define the Dunedin sound, but I think it really defines indie rock and the kind of indie rock sound and the lo-fi approach. Like, this is happening, obviously, at the same time, pretty much at the same time as as Lou Barlow starting to do Sebado stuff. So there's that other sort of sonic influence and then there's swell maps, but my God are the clean important to things and, and what a band, what a band. And then that's also not to diminish the other things these guys have done in music. Like this is, Oh, I'm, I'm excited for you to hear this one. this is a a big one for me. Uh, listen to the clean, Uh, listen to the clean. Listen to all those bands. All right. That is it. Thank you for listening to me ramble on in the middle of the night. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards everyone, you know, and just people of different faiths and, and just, just knock all that stuff off because we're not talking about stuff here as in, in terms of political issues. These are human rights issues. People have the right to be free and just to live their lives and, and, and not have to worry about violence and hate. So... Get involved with organizations that are, are making positive change in this world. Get involved in organizations that, you know, you can, you can see doing good work, you know, volunteer time, volunteer money, show up to causes that you uh, agree in, agree with, agree in, agree with, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. Yeah, no, you're just like, take these things, go get rid of them, you know? But remember to do something creative before you, you know, go, you know, so please uh, try and do something like draw, like make your own fanzine, do do anything, you know, try, try anything. It'll help your mental health. And speaking of helping your mental health, try meditating. I, I, I tried and it really does feel better after I do it. And I didn't believe in it. So maybe it'll do the same for you. Uh, that's it. Uh, uh, stay safe. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.